Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. COVID-19 gets compared to epidemics of the past from the 1918 flu or modern viruses like Ebola. But surprisingly, there aren't many comparisons to the great plague that affected the gay community in the 80s, AIDS. Treatment for HIV AIDS has come a long way since the 80s, but it's killed over 700,000 Americans to date, and there's still no cure. In the new book, Plague Years, A Doctor's Journey Through the AIDS Crisis, Dr. Ross Slotten gives us a firsthand account of life in Chicago during the AIDS epidemic. In the memoir, Dr. Slotten recounts his story fighting AIDS on the front lines at St. Joseph's Hospital in Lincoln Park. It's a harrowing tale of life, death, and fighting for your community. Dr. Slotten, welcome to Reset. You were a young doctor. At the time, you had a private office, and the office was, and you talk about it in the book, but it's really started in the early 80s. Talk about starting that practice on the near north side between Old Town and Cabrini-Green. Well, I finished my training as a family practitioner in 1984, and they actually did it at St. Joseph Hospital. So I joined my current business partner, uh, Thomas Klein, and the two of us um, really started just a general family practice. HIV was just beginning to show its face. We weren't really intending to become specialists in that area, but it began, sort of happened accidentally because we both are gay, gay men. We volunteered at Howard Brown Health, Health Clinic. It was called Howard Brown Memorial Center at the time. And we'd see patients there with various problems like venereal diseases and so forth, and they didn't have primary care physicians, or they had physicians that, that, that they were not out to and, or actually uh, rejected them from their practices. So we started building a practice in that, nat- in that way, and we became inadvertent AIDS experts. It wasn't something we sought. You said that rejection. Uh, what does that mean, the idea that the patients were rejected? Well, patients would see a, a physician, physician with, if, if the patient had a, a, HIV or they found out that the patient was gay, they didn't want them in their practice. And you know, this was something that was not that unusual at that time, at that time historically. Or patients were afraid to admit to their physicians that they were gay, and so they sought someone that was more sympathetic. And we don't see that so much today, but it was certainly a big problem back in the 80s. You know, for you to be on the front lines, to to be in practice and to be admitting gay men who are coming in with different issues, when was it when you first experienced someone with symptoms of HIV? I mean, the first person I saw was in 1982. It was actually my, you know, present, but at that, at that point, my future business partner's patient who admitted the intensive care unit with what turned out to be pneumocystis pneumonia. But by the time he came to the intensive care unit, he was in respiratory failure, was on a ventilator, uh, and he ultimately died from it. So that was the first patient that I actually saw. And then in my own little clinic that I began as a resident, I started seeing patients with what would turn out to be various early forms of HIV, which we didn't always recognize. So it was a trickle, it was a trickling effect initially. And then it wasn't until the you know, late 80s that it became almost a, you know, a tsunami. I really enjoyed the book because I really enjoyed the journal entry. You were able, you were taking uh, notes. You were essentially journaling your experiences in the 80s in Chicago at St. Joe's in your practice during the AIDS epidemic. I mean, I, you know, why write it? I mean, at the time, I, when I took these, when I was, had these journals, it was more or less a way to kind of process my day. I certainly didn't take them on a daily basis, but I would do it on a periodic basis. And it actually continued over a 20-year period of time as the, you know, as the pandem- epidemic, or really it was a pandemic, began to evolve. And so, you know, I thought about writing something early on, but it was just so emotionally close to that that time that I, I really couldn't put it, put it down in, in formal writing. 
And then, you know, the last few years, as I've started seeing fewer people actually with, with overt AIDS, but then dealing with young men who are at risk, who are asking about PrEP, which is the medication to take for preventing mm-hmm. HIV infection mm-hmm. through sexual activity, uh, I thought, you know what, there needs to be a book really directed at that population because these young men don't know anything about this. It's, it's to me like a Holocaust, in a sense, a Holocaust memoir. And I had enough emotional distance since I hadn't been seeing people dying of AIDS that I thought I could actually put this down on paper. Was it hard for you to do that? I mean, because a lot of the book is about your emotional attachment to your patients, to your community, and and really trying to process as a doctor seeing what was happening on the front lines. Well, yeah, it was very hard. I mean, initially I started off as being more of an academic book, and then it just didn't really work. And then I started working my own personal story um, into it, and that, that part, of course, was extremely difficult because I'm more of a private person. But I saw that my personal and professional life paralleled this epidemic, epidemic from the very beginning. So I thought it would be a good way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it was very painful at times, for sure. Early on in the epidemic, uh, pandemic, however you want to call it, but just in the, the age crisis, a lot of focus was put on the coast, was put on New York and San Francisco, less on Chicago. And you even mentioned the book about being someone who, was, who knew it was happening and was like, well, is it coming here? Not sure. But, but there was this, this almost bias, this coast bias to, uh, that it was only going to or was only affecting the major cities on the coast. When you thought about that at the time and, and wrote about that experience, and knowing that you didn't have the answers of whether or not it was going to come to Chicago, what was the feeling going through your head? Well, I think initially it was sort of, first it was a curiosity, you know, when I read about it in the uh, CDC little journal. It, at first it seemed, I, I didn't recognize this was going to be of the magnitude that it turned out to be. And I think that's a, that's not uncommon. I mean, we see this COVID too, that we think, oh, it's going to be in China and go nowhere else. But um, so there's a little bit of a denial of how this kind of, these kind of things work. So at first I didn't think it would come here, but I was sort of a little bit nervous about it. And then clearly it, it, it came. And but it came later, a little bit. You know, we were behind the coasts, and the coasts are a little bit more vociferous, at least early on, and mm-hmm. numerically larger. And I think that's where the attention went. But we had it here too, and and, and obviously other cities in this in the country had it. But they were talking about it more as a, as a coastal thing initially. I saw the great uh, documentary that was on the uh, San Francisco uh, County Hospital from last year. It was tremendous about uh, opening up the, a- the first AIDS wing in San Francisco. And you talk a lot about the the decision to open up 11 West in St. Joe's, just the idea of having a wing that was dedicated to patients that were coming through through AIDS. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was something that became clear that we needed to have. I mean, obviously, we weren't, we weren't the first. Some of it was modeled on San Francisco and Cook County Hospital actually had the first AIDS unit in, in Chicago. Then Illinois Sonic set one up. And we realized that we really need to have that because we had such a large volume of patients. There were physicians and nurses who didn't, did not want to deal with those patients, felt quite uncomfortable. And we wanted an environment where it was welcoming and, and, and as warm as it could be with dedicated personnel mm-hmm. that could deal with these people. And that's, that's why we did it. I mean, I can't say we were the first, obviously, but we were but there certainly was, among large. But, but what's fascinating about that is that at the time, not unlike what we're seeing with COVID right now, the perceived risk of infection had everybody in, in full PPE. So when you were dealing with someone who was uh, an AIDS patient, it was, it was all sorts of uh, protective gear that was on. And there was a movement in medicine, and you were part of that movement too, to make it more of a hospice experience as opposed to an experience that was almost alien-like. 
Well, I think by the time we set up the unit, we really weren't really in full PPE. That really wasn't necessary. I mean, early on when we'd had no idea what this was, we, we, that's what we did. When we realized this was transmitted in a very specific way, obviously you use gloves if you're drawing blood. But when you're, unless, unless you were dealing with someone who had tuberculosis, there was no need necessarily to be masking up and gowning and that kind of thing. We could be a little bit more casual in that, that, that regard. So, so it's, it's, it's different. It was sort of the reverse. So early on, we started with PPE just because of our lack of understanding. But later on, we realized that we didn't have to do that. One of the things that you talk about is the, is the stress and the, and the stress management that are, that's on professionals, phys- physicians, doctors, and others. And just in this case, having to deal with patients and their families with a, with a disease that you knew not enough about and did not know how long they had left to live, did not know that obviously there was no cure, uh, essentially had to tell patients and their families that they were dying. How did you process it? How did you do that as, as a physician? You know, we were trained initially to save everybody, if you will. I mean, I think that's not the training today. But in those days, you know, if, you, if a patient died, it was, you're almost a failure as a physician. As time went on, I think to cope psychologically, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to save most of these people. And I had to have sort of an emotional transition. And I can't say this was all conscious. But I, I came to understand that since I couldn't save people's lives in, in that way, if I could make their dying a, a better process, I sort of had that sort of epiphany that I would focus on that and try to make them as comfortable as possible. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think by the, by the late 80s, most people who had HIV grasped that they had a fatal disease. And so in some ways, it was a little easier to have that kind of conversation because they were already prepared, but by no means was it, was it easy. And also we had to deal with families and lovers and all that. So the patient might maybe at one stage emotionally, but the family and, and partners were at different stages. So it was, it was like a juggling act, trying to balance everything. When did you realize that um, what you had thought about the you know, curiosity early on about uh, what AIDS was and the fact that now it was, it was a full-on pandemic, when did you realize as a physician that this was going to be untenable? I mean, I think I sort of reached an emotional I don't want to say a crisis that's kind of too strong, but just really an exhaustion, probably 1991, 92. I think that was the year that I was told that I signed more death certificates than any other physician in Chicago, which mm. was not a statistic I sought. It was something that a, a colleague of mine who worked for the Chicago Board of Health just sort of told me, which kind of shocked me. But I realized at that point, I mean, this was when it was almost unbearable. And not just patients, but many of the patients were friends too. And they were dying at that point. And there just seemed like in the early 90s that there was no end in sight. I just, we, we, we saw no cure. We saw no way of dealing with this. Medications were ineffective. It just seemed so bleak. And I knew that if it kept going on like that, you know, indefinitely, that there was no way I would survive as a physician, at least emotionally. Mm. You know, there, there's a lot in the book and it's some really eloquent writing from your journals back in the day about dealing with death. And you had to almost adjust the way that you thought and also have a different relationship with death. Talk about that. I thought about death every single day. And of course, when you see people your own age dying and imagining myself in their position, it was very, very painful. And there had to be a lot of, I mean, for me to go on, I admit I had had to repress a lot. I mean, as a physician, you learn to, you try to learn to compartmentalize. And sometimes I did that a little bit too well, where I just sort of stuff this thing down deep inside me and try not to really deal with it because if you think about it too much you can't perform i mean but but it it took a toll in its own way i mean it's sort of i haven't really processed it completely i probably have a little bit of ptsd to this day 
But yes, it was extremely difficult. But I think there was also a camaraderie with those those of us who were taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was doing this in isolation. We'd have meetings, we'd have discussions with other other physicians across the country, within the city. I mean, so there was a network that I think helped to like a re- release valve a little bit. I mean, I think if it was a lone practitioner doing this, it probably would have been impossible. And and you write about this in the book too, but and you say I think you start the passage with ordinarily I don't hold a grudge, but you couldn't forgive other physicians for abandoning their patients for abandoning you, uh, trying to distance themselves from the AIDS crisis because maybe of ignorance or maybe they didn't understand what was happening, but they didn't, they didn't necessarily go where you went to help that community. In my mind, I thought they failed. I mean, as physicians, we take risks. You don't want to take foolish risks, but you take a risk. It's sort of the oath of office, if you will. And to turn patients away because, simply because of fear, I think, is, is not an honorable way to be treating patients. I mean, I, I, I was scared. I mean, and of course, I was scared for the, my colleagues, like surgeons. I mean, what if they cut, you know, early on, if they cut themselves during surgery, would they get infected with HIV? So the group that we collected, it was just our duty. It was our duty. This was what we, stu- we studied for. And, and so I, to this day, I still, still feel very loyal to some of those people who are still practicing, who I referred patients to, because they never, they didn't abandon me or my patients. They were there always for me. One of the things that you pointed out, and I kind of referenced it in the lead to the, to the piece or to talking with you, was just this idea of, of where the hospital was situated in Lincoln Park, and you would go down to your car after uh, a harrowing day and, and losing uh, not just uh, patients but friends, and recognizing a community around the hospital and that was oblivious to what was happening, that it didn't affect them, that they were out exercising, running errands, living their life, not really recognizing it up a couple floors at 11 West in St. Joe's Hospital. People were dying left and right. So talk about that. Talk about that experience, because I think that there is a parallel to what we see today when people are jogging and exercising as as COVID-19 is spreading. Yeah, I mean, the parallel, is, I was sort of joking with the patient today. It was I said, you know, face masks are basically face condoms. <laughs> And you know people are resistant to using condoms through sexual activity. This was a, this was you know this, these were discussions that I have with my patients in the eighties and nineties. I look at face masks as basically the same thing. That on the one hand, with unlike you know condoms protect you also the patient the person who wears it, but the face mask protects other people. And I think there's that parallel that people just there's denial that they're at risk that, that anything's going to happen to them. They may not really consider what the consequences may be for other people. So yes, there's that parallel to some degree, that in, almost indifference or, I, I wouldn't say ignorance, I think it's just sort of denial. That's probably the term I'd use. Yeah. You know, as a, as a practicing physician, you're seeing patients and you, you uh, continue to see uh, people who may be affected by COVID-19. What, what are the similarities in what you're experiencing today in 2020 and what you experienced, say, in 1982, 1983? I mean, I think one of the big differences, say, is that, well, COVID-19 COVID is like AIDS compressed into months. For me, the AIDS epidemic lasted for almost 20 years. So that it was a slow, constant, low-level anxiety, you know, anger, all that sort of thing. COVID has happened so rapidly. They're completely different diseases, um, transmitted totally differently. I mean, thank goodness that the mortality rates from COVID are quite low because HIV is 98% fatal if not treated. So imagine a, a respiratory virus of that kind of mortality rate. That would be you know, an absolute catastrophe. Uh, I think the level of uh, engagement by the government initially, I mean, certainly there was, again, denial and a refusal to admit that this was going to be as big a problem as it turned out to be. The same thing happened in the early days of AIDS. Slight differences that AIDS 
affected more marginalized populations, so they're easier to ignore. There is sort of the scapegoating that's happening a little bit with the Asian population. I mean, if that was happening earlier on with COVID, and that was happening certainly with the gay population um, with AIDS. But you know, but there really are many differences because they're, they're such different viruses, and their their social and economic impacts are have been completely different. Well, the book is fantastic, it's called Plague Years, A Doctor's Journey Through the AIDS Crisis. Dr. Ross Slotten was there. Uh, he was uh, practicing his private practice right there. I was on North Avenue and between uh, Old Town and Cabrini-Green. Can I make one last comment? Yeah, please. If you don't mind? I would say one thing about the book is that, which is unint- unintended consequence, is that, I mean, the book ends in, in a light way. The unintended message is that we will find our way through COVID. We found our way through HIV. We didn't cure it, but we found a way through it. I don't know what the answer is with COVID, but we will find our way through it. Uh, Dr. Slotin, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's today's Reset. If you appreciate the conversations on Reset, conversations that help you better understand your city, your neighbors, and yourself, please go to WBEZ.org right now and help us during our summer pledge drive. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right here tomorrow for another Reset from WBEZ, Chicago's NPR station. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.